Hello and welcome to episode one of Women's Strength Collective, the podcast. I am your host, Shay Zaru, and each episode we'll be taking a deep dive together into a topic related to lifting health and life. From nutrition, sports psychology, the pelvic floor, our hormones, and so much more, you'll hear from those at the top of their game who have dedicated their careers to helping women succeed and thrive. Women's Strength Collective was built around education and connection, and we can't wait to bring you all the quality information without the bullshit. You can find us on Instagram at Women's Strength Collective. You can find me at Beyonce on Instagram. And everything that we do mention in the podcast will be linked in the show notes, including the links to our guest social media. Joining us today and kicking off the podcast is Dr. Megan Jones, all the way from Calgary in Canada. She describes herself as a human performance scientist, spending the last 10 years dedicated to her studies in biomechanics of human movement. She's been a huge influence in my own coaching and competing career, and it's an absolute honor to have her on as the first guest. We discuss urinary incontinence and the difference between stress and urge when it comes to the pelvic floor, the difference between breathing and actually bracing, the impacts of our cycle on training and how we can maximize performance, and her very important research into the role of the adductor magnus in the squat. Megan is an absolute powerhouse and is well and truly making a mark in the powerlifting world through her company, Kinetic Advantage Consulting. This episode will show you exactly why. Welcome to the podcast, Megan Jones. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you because over a year ago now, I had my own lifts assessed by you and I still refer back to that assessment, especially when I'm programming uh, like looking at my own programming and looking at my clients' programming. But for those who don't know you or haven't had as many interactions with you, if you just want to give yourself a bit of an introduction and maybe a bit about your training background too, because it is quite extensive. Okay. Um, I like to tell it almost like a, an origin story. Um, so <laughs> I started powerlifting back in 2007 um, and this is when it was only like equipped lifting and there's like one, I was a junior lifter and there was only one of us per weight class. So it was wow. like that, you know, everyone, like I won best junior, my first nationals um, and like you, you qualified. So it was a very different sport back then. And it was all equipped lifting if you wanted to be competitive. Um, but I was doing my biology undergrad and I was like, okay, what, what am I going to do with a biology undergrad? Um, I came from Prince Edward Island, which is a small island in Canada. There's not much in terms of opportunity. And my mom is a professor of nursing. So I was like, oh, I'm going to go to grad school. It started with kind of like selfish um, purposes because I wanted to get better at power. I went into, um, did my master's at University of Alberta in physical education and recreation but I focused in biomechanics and um, I focused on the squat because it was my worst lift and I sucked at it. So like many I of us. To, yeah. So I wanted to learn the most about it. Like, you know, people talk about their leverages, like the top of my hip bones top touched the bottom of my ribs. I got the shortest torso yep. and then these long legs. So I wanted to learn more about it. And, and I was dealing with some, you know, hip issues and, and problems. So it started off selfish and then, um, I, after I finished my master's, I realized there, like in Canada, you, you, everyone really wants to do sports research, but you can't get funding for it and you can't get a job somewhere unless you um, get funding. 
So I did my master's um, taking, it extended from what I did with my math, um, with my master's on squatting biomechanics. And I applied it to looking at um, geriatric rehab, the sit to stand class. As there is, when I did my master's on squatting, there is no really research at the time yep. uh, that you could refer to. So I had to look at geriatric research and understanding muscle compensation strategies. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take what I learned from my master's, apply it to looking at the sit to stand task um, with young and older adults. But it was really unique because I went from looking at athletes to, you know, like the high, you know, above average strength to older adults with the below average. So it gives you really kind of like a good perspective of all all considerations like weaknesses and strengths. So um, I learned a lot about muscle compensation strategies and it, it's something that I'm still trying to get my research published on it. But um, I learned, you know, how transferring loading demands and, you know, the, not only the role of, um, you know, like muscles and anatomy and structure, um, but the, the, the nervous system and how it controls our body and um, how it, you know, really likes to make things easier for it and how it likes to protect things. And I was doing my postdoctoral fellowship after I finished my PhD back at U of A. And I, I basically, when you're a postdoc, you're like a, a lab monkey, like Mm-hmm. Paid minimum wage, so I started a Connecticut Managed Consulting um, as an additional source of income, and it, it was something like, "Oh, there's nothing like this out there." But I know I have a lot to offer people um, because I see, you know, like I'm watching people lift, and I'm like, "Okay, this is what they need to be doing," based on you know this ten years of my research, and it really didn't dawn on me how unavailable this information is for everyone out there. And so that's where I started. Okay. I'm going to tell everyone about the information. And then it developed into this kind of assessment process that um, it, it kind of evolved on its own. And from there, um, based on what people are telling what their needs are and what they want to learn, I'm, I've kind of developed my company based on what people, the demands yeah. are and kind of following that. I think the one great thing about your assessments as well, and I've seen you comment on them quite a bit, is you really look at what is happening and explain it to the person who you are assessing instead of offering a critique, Mm -hmm. which is definitely one of the things that I enjoyed so much about your assessment. And I know that, you know, everyone else who has got their assessments done because often when you do get in contact with coaches or you, you know, have a different coach, they obviously see their role as uh, changing a lot and you don't often get a, I guess a reason as to why they are changing it so much in terms of what is actually going on with your body, how the muscles are actually working. And so with your assessments, I think they kind of stand out and probably want to have gained so much traction as well in powerlifting. Yeah. yeah and that's like, I, I hate the word critique. Like it's not a critique. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's you move this way. And that was something I really learned with my PhD research is the body's going to do whatever the hell it wants to do mm-hmm. to get, to achieve the goal. And you can try to, you know, cue people chest up or do this and do that, but your body's not going to listen to it when it gets to heavier loads. So if you're talking about the general population, yeah, cueing works really well. But when it comes to powerlifting and max strength, uh, like sports, yeah. um, the cueing can only go so far. And that's where it's understanding, okay, why does my form break down when it gets when the load gets heavier? Like what is going on? And it just comes to the body trying to, you know, 
redistribute efforts and make things easier for itself. And that is what I am trying to get across to people that, you know, um, yes, you can widen your stance, you can do that. But me for me, changing your technique, changing your stance, changing your shoes, or, you know, switching to sumo versus conventional, that is like a last resort for me address the weaknesses and let your squat naturally evolve. Like, right? Yeah. I remember even when I sent you my first videos and because I've had like, you know, had so much conflicting opinions over, you know, like my squat stance and my shoes and I sent you so many videos. I remember being like, here's my wider stance with my shoes. Here's my wider stance without moderate, my <laughs> Moderate stance. <laughs> yeah. Slightly turned in. And, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Oh, it's so Don't stress funny. about it. Don't stress about it. That's what I keep saying to, to the lifters that I work with. I was like, don't overthink it. Your body's going to do what it has to do. And like you can overthinking it. It's just going to mess with, with what it wants to do. And it's going to make things harder for yourself let me stress about you know the the nitpicking and tell you what exercises are going to bring up your strengths and then your squat will naturally evolve because yep. your body's gonna you know transfer the loading to the stronger muscle groups no matter what you try to do in a heavy attempt and that is powerlifting moving heavy weights so um, it's different for different sports and different populations but for powerlifting specifically it's just like stop stop focusing on the little you know, technique tweaks because um, they can only go so far yeah, absolutely. You actually sent me one of your presentations, which is called Train mm -hmm. Like a Girl, and it was absolutely amazing. Obviously, a huge common topic that kind of pops up because it is such a frequent thing that happens is uh, urinary incontinence. When people think incontinence, they often think weak pelvic floor. And when I was watching your presentation, I realized obviously like there can also be people who have a very strong pelvic floor as well, which also mm -hmm. causes similar kind of issues. Yeah. So, and kind of, you know, throwing things back to when I first started lifting, there wasn't a lot of female lifters and mm -hmm. we, and no one really focused on, you know, female specific training needs and it was always just do what the boys were doing you know grunted up and you know um, Valsalva and as the sport grew and grew and became more popular so many women there's a greater proportion you know like there's it affects a certain percentage of women um, but because there's more of us it, it becomes more like common like everyone can see you know a female urinating on the platform and it was kind of brushed off as like oh like she was trying really hard that was a good grind and it's just kind of been accepted as you know it is what it is and women don't realize that it can be treated and mm -hmm. things can be done they can go see a pelvic floor physio like I'm not a pelvic floor physio um, I worked with pre and postnatal women um, I have a seven month old and I was the opposite spectrum. I had a strong pelvic floor and it was yeah. tight, but I had, you know, at pee every two minutes because it was so tight. Yeah. But having my baby and learning all this stuff beforehand, I was really, really fortunate to be working with these, you know, these pregnant women and these postnatal women because it kind of helped me prepare. So my pelvic floor is actually better post baby because she helped make me realize I have to relax it. So yeah. some women need to strengthen it and some women need to learn how to relax it because they're constantly clenched with it. So yeah. um, that is that one thing though that I can give some some clues, but if it's something that is really impacting a female lifter, they need to go see a pelvic floor physio to get Yeah, it. absolutely. It, it requires an internal assessment. 
Yeah, yep. see a specialist. I think even sometimes when people do have these issues, they think, oh, you know, maybe my bracing or my breathing will probably be able to help with it. But if it is something that someone is chronically having to deal with every single time they work up to a heavier weight, I hope that no one is normalizing it and it shouldn't be something that people just have to deal with. So when you look at the stress versus urge, what are the common symptoms of both? With stress incontinence, you think of stress, so pressure is being applied to the bladder and, you know, powerlifting, you, you need to Valsalva on a heavy lift. Um, you know, there's that pop can analogy where you, if the pop can is full, then it's stronger. If you step on it, it's not going to crush versus if it's empty um, and you step on it, it is going to crush. Um, so with Valsalva, yes, it does help stabilize the spine, but if you're chronically bearing down on your pelvic floor, then that mechanical stress over time is going to you know, cause problems to the structure and make it weaker. Yeah. So that constant bearing down, that stress to the pelvic floor and the bladder is what's causing the stress incontinence. Urge incontinence is when um, it, it's that key in the door. So if you really have to pee and you, you know, you have your key in the door or you're like about to go pee and then you're unbuttoning your pants and like you can't get your pants off, you can't get that zipper down quick enough because like you really have to pee. And then some women will actually start urinating before they actually get their pants down or they'll be, you know, um, on the platform and they'll be urinating um, on a heavy lift, but then they'll continue to as well. So mm -hmm. it's it's this oversensitivity of the bladder um, that that's causing it. And usually, if there's a tight pelvic floor, um, so that was my problem for a while. So like I was that person on the the road trip that had to pee every half hour because yeah. I had a tight pelvic floor and it was applying pressure up onto the bladder. But I wasn't really technically leaking, but my bladder wanted to uh, evacuate the urine like yeah. right away so when yeah. I was pregnant I had to pee so much and that was like my realization okay maybe I have a really tight pelvic floor and it made sense um, for a lot of like putting the pieces of the puzzle together and for that person they need to learn how to relax it the person with the stress incontinence they need to strengthen it so if you have a weak pelvic floor yes kegels and lifting focusing on not bearing down is going to help but if you are someone with a tight pelvic floor and your folks on Kegels, it's just going to make it tighter. And even if you're bearing down on a really tight structure, it, it's going to want to, you know, tear and cause the damage to it. Yeah. It's just the pressure has to go where somewhere it's, it's the laws of physics. So both conditions are, are not good for women in powerlifting. And, um, but you, again, like you have to figure out which one you are and that urge versus like if you're that key in the door person, that's what's going to help you figure, okay, probably I shouldn't be focused on Kegels and you know, yeah. tightening and clenching. If you're someone that is a jaw clencher, there's this relationship where if you are generally a clencher, then every sphincter that you have likes to clench. Yeah, if okay. you clench and grind your teeth at night, that's also a sign that maybe you have a tight pelvic floor. Um, but um, I can't conclusively or if that's just like common occurrence, but it's not proven yet, I guess. Yeah, I think yeah, it's called, there's something out there called sphincter theory. 
One of the other um, interesting symptoms that you popped on your uh, presentation was the tight adductors as well. Yeah, yeah. If you have tight adductors, and I'm also, that was another clue. Yes, thank you for reminding me. I have the worst adductors. Like, I will never be able to do this. I am with um, you. And, yeah. I, and I try to release them so much. And part of it is my hip structure that I, you know, thank my mom for. But my adductors are very tight and they're always, you know, getting tension in them. And I was a knee valgus lifter and always using them a lot. Um, So women, if you have a tight adductors um, and there's a lot of tension in them, and especially if you're uh, like a knee valgus lifter because of overusing your adductor magnus when you're squatting, then that's also a sign that you have a tight pelvic floor because there is a link there. Moving into thinking about, you know, the pelvic floor and thinking about our breathing as well. The thing I've noticed is people often are confused like breathing and bracing as being the same thing. And I think it'd be really beneficial if you kind of broke down the Valsalva and even, you know, expand on that can theory. The pop can analogy, it's true. Valsalva is important and you, you have to Valsalva when you're doing a really heavy attempt. Um, but if you're valsalving all the time, um, even with your light loads when you don't need to be and you could be bracing properly, um, then, you know, maybe your your strategy should change. So if you were to take the pop can analogy and then uh, replace the aluminum walls with a rubber balloon, so if you're constantly, you know, valsalving and using ab- intra-abdominal pressure, but you're not also activating those corset muscles, your, your core muscles as well, then that pressure is just going to go out. It can go down, but it can also go out. Like I have male clients with um, ab separation, so diastasis recti, where obviously they never had children, but that, that pressure has got to go somewhere. Yep. Um, so whenever you're always relying on the pressure and you're not, you know, bracing, it just, it's this, this downward spiral and you rely on it more and more and more you use your belt and you're you're focusing on pushing out against your belt but the pressure is going to go somewhere like I used to call like I had a turtle tummy because I was a major Valsalva when I was lifting Mm -hmm. equipped because I had way more weight on my back so Valsalva was even more important and then I started going okay well I'm going to do a little bit of like stomach vacuum get my my belt tighter and that way um, I won't be you know, it'll help me with my, my turtle tummy. But then I started getting like a lower belly pooch. is <laughs> the, the nicest mm-hmm. way to say it. And I was like, crap, like, what am I doing? And it's because the pressure has to go somewhere. If you put your belt on tighter, so you're not pushing out against your belt. So you, you, know, you don't get that distension in the upper abs. It's got to go somewhere. It's going to go in the lower abs. So that was kind of the realization that, okay, you can't just have your abs as this rubber balloon with that you put a tight belt around because yeah. it's just it's not going to do anything and the muscles are going to get weaker and weaker they're going to get stretched out which makes them even weaker and then you're going to get stronger like your legs and you're going to be moving heavier weight with these weaker and weaker muscles so turning the pop can making sure it's not a rubber balloon making sure that you're bracing with your core um, properly um, making the walls of that that can aluminum is extremely important um, and a number one sign that the lifter isn't doing that is if they have, you know, their pelvis kind of rotates that they twerk out of the hole or they bum tuck a bit, but also if they have an extreme rib flare, the rib flaring, it yeah. just means that you do not have tension in the front um, abdominal wall. So maybe you have tension in your erectors and your lower back is arched, but you need it 360 around. Um, so rib flaring is like one of the first things that I look at um, with a lifter with bracing. And the, the best cue that I can give 
is, and I did this with a couple strong women, strong man sport women. <laughs> and I was like, I want you to scream. And they're like, what? I'm like, I want you to scream. And I yeah. did it with them, some of my, my university students. And I was like, I want you to literally um, embrace your inner female tennis player. Like they're going to smash that rocket or smash the ball with their rocket. And they go, ha. And I, I don't want to yell into this microphone, but if you're sitting here right now at home and listening to this and you, you put your hands on your belly and you go, ha, your belly button comes in. And the, if that's happening, that means you're activating your, your transverse abdominis, your ribs go down and your pelvis gets into a nice neutral step, uh, position. So that is like that, that position that you want to be whenever you're starting your lift. So a lot of lifters will take a deep breath and they're thinking, okay, big chest and they fill their lungs up with air. Yeah. But this is also and when they the ribs, yeah, yeah. And then they, they just lose that tension and they flare because um, they're trying to get the air. in. so after you get that position, the next cue I give is some people call it crocodile breathing. Um, and you can do it by like laying on your belly to tell, but I think of it as 360 breathing. So you don't want to just be taking a big breath by expanding your rib cage forward. You want to expand it out to the side and back to the wall. So when you take a deep breath in, you want to think ribs out to the side and then ribs expanding behind you. And that'll help you, you know, keep things neutral and prevent the rib flare. You get set, but as soon as you take that deep breath, you lose that tension because you just flared your ribs, take a big breath to Valsalva. Yeah. So it's the, the bracing, the getting in the good position, the belly button in towards the spine, and then you take your deep breath and fill everything up. Um, you still need to remember though that, yeah, you don't have to maybe rely as, use as much intra-abdominal pressure if you're bracing, but if you're constantly doing it, even for like your first warm up with the bar, then you're just chronically loading the pelvic floor. So you got to think maybe, okay, maybe I want to do some of that ah, kind of feeling um, whenever in exhale, whenever I'm, I'm squatting and not always yep. holding my breath and timing that exhale. And um, a great way to think of it is, so it's called piston breathing and that's how we're, we're supposed to breathe. So whenever we inhale, we create a vacuum by our diaphragm lowering down. And so when we inhale, our pelvic floor should actually move with our diaphragm and lower. So when we take mm -hmm. a deep breath, our, our diaphragm goes down and our, we should relax our pelvic floor and should move down. Whenever we exhale, our diaphragm comes up to push the air out of our, our rib cage, our thoracic cavity, our lungs, and then our pelvic floor should lift with it. So whenever you sit there and do that contraction, <sighs> or that, that scream, you can feel your pelvic floor lifting. So whenever I have a lifter that um, it might be stress incontinence, then that's when I say, and I see that they're not bracing properly. I, I, I cue them by just yelling and it, it, they're like, really? Like, that's embarrassing. It's like, yeah, I know. It's like the bros were right. Like the bros were right to, to be grunting. It's like, you don't have to do it <laughs> obnoxiously, <laughs> but it, it's so important. And it, it's so good for women um, with stress incontinence. For the yeah, women with so, the urge incontinence, they need to, whenever they're taking that inhale, they need to learn how to relax and lower that pelvic floor because they're probably doing like the opposite. They're, they're lifting it whenever they're inhaling and uh, lowering it when they're exhaling and bearing down. So it's uh, that synchrony between the diaphragm and the pelvic floor that's important. Yeah. And so you often call this active exhalation? Yeah. I, I just, it's not like fancy methodology. It's just like you're going, whenever you're exhaling, you're thinking about like you're you're blowing out a candle mm. or you're trying to blow up a balloon and you're 
actively pushing that air out of your belly using your abs and you, you have a really tight pursed lips um, so that like you you're you're using your abs to fight against your lips to push that air out as hard air out as hard as you can um, but the lips are fighting against you so whenever you do that you feel that belly button coming in towards the spine it's the same thing like that the ha like the yell the belly button comes in and that means that you're engaging your transverse abdominis which is extremely important in connecting your rib cage to your 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 pelvis when you practice that or practice that yell or practice even you know like through that really narrow straw you can definitely feel your abs whereas if you're obviously just doing that valsalva and you're just doing that breathing sometimes you can generally do that and not actually even feel uh no, like like you, you don't even anything. engage your transverse abdominis mm. and you're using all this abdominal pressure and that's what i mean by like male clients with abs distension and abs separation because yep. and they're like oh I, I can't brace it properly and i'm, I'm I think my core stability, so I'm going to do a bunch of ab crunches. But no, 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 no. When you activate your transverse abdominis, it's it's not like a, a bicep curl contraction. It's like a, a deep belly ache. And that's, yeah. and it's something that, and the pieces of the puzzle really clicked with me when I was working with these pre and postnatal women. And we were doing this breathing stuff. And I was like, holy crap, like this is so applicable to powerlifting. It, it needs to be used very differently. Yeah. Um, you can't just, take it because obviously, uh, you know, a nine month pregnant woman or and if you're a couple weeks postnatal should not be lifting heavy weight because your core is basically a wet noodle at that point. But it's, <laughs> it's something that can be applied the theory to it. You know, it's the laws of physics, pressure has got to go somewhere. And if you're not, um, you know, controlling that pressure properly, it can cause some damage chronically over time. It's like learning how to walk again it's like learning how yeah. to breathe and brace again so if you put your belt on at like your first warm-up you're, you're not learning how to use it and it's if you don't use it you lose it yep. so it's kind of delaying when you put your belt on and finding a combination between bracing and valsalva that's going to work for you and obviously there are women out there that don't have any incontinence problems and it's it's figuring out like why does it affect some women but it doesn't others and really looking into their their warm ups and you know their their breathing methodologies and how they wear their belts and you know maybe saving those big pressure grinds for if you're working at you know like 85% or higher of your 1RM or 8 out of 10 on the your rate of your perceived exertion scale so if you're not doing it chronically and you're only saving it for those times where you really need it, um, not only is your transverse abdominis going to get stronger progressively over time, it's like baby steps um, when you're working at, you know, okay, I'm going to try it with my, my second warm up today, or okay, next week I'm going to try it with my third warm up and see if I can do it. Um, and people will develop this sensation of whenever they get to the point where, okay, my, my, my core is just not strong enough to be doing it for this weight and I need to reverse back to my belt off in my belt but it, it's definitely baby steps you do not want to be doing active exhalation and just abandoning your valsalva at like a heavy attempt but that that screaming does help and I, I highly encourage women to embrace their inner I guess warrior a really good example of this is actually um Isabella von Weissenberg and so okay. when she comes out of the hole, you can actually even see her do that active exhalation even probably just before but obviously that's when she is trying to keep that nice actual brace position mm -hmm. in her squat and keep everything nice and stabilized. So in terms of timing it, 
in your lift? Is it just trial and error? Do you do it halfway down before you hit the hole as you're coming out of the hole? What do you find is the best way to start implementing something like this? So it, it depends on the individual. So if I have someone like with a hernia or really bad ab separation and lower back pain, um, postnatal, prenatal woman, then I tell them to do the, the blow before you go. So that means you're, you're not going to be moving heavy weights regardless. Um, you're not going to have this big grind that you need to like time things out or you're going to run out of air. So you actually start your exhale before you start your descent. And you're trying to lengthen it out by keeping those lips like nice and tight, like you're blowing out that candle to, to time it for the entire movement. Um, you know, deadlifts, it's a lot easier because you don't have the, the, the eccentric phase. It's just concentric. But for those individuals, they need to be doing the blow before you go. When it comes to my um, other clients, this is the, the trial and the error. Some, some they need to do it right before they hit the hole. Some need to do it two-thirds of the way down. Um, I just recommend trying out different times and recording it. So the set that you see that you maybe you're feeling your glutes the most because if you aren't bracing, you're going to go into an anterior pelvic tilt. Mm-hmm. You go into an anterior pelvic tilt like you're twerking. Um, your glutes are disengaged and you'll, you'll see that pelvis move or you'll, you'll see the breakdown and kind of the body turning into that, that wet noodle. So if you find that some people just need to do it a little earlier to get that connection before they hit the hole, but um, some people, they can just do it as they start coming up in their concentric up phase. It just, it depends on the individual and they need to play around with it. Yeah. Like some people, if they're trying to use that muscle for the first time ever in their life, basically it's, they need to start with baby steps and maybe the blow before you go. And then maybe they'll, they'll progress to, okay, you know, two thirds of the way down. Okay. Right before I hit the hole. And then, okay, I'm going to do it um, as I'm coming up. Maybe I can Valsalva a little bit in the hole and then I can do it on the rest of the way up depending on how their pelvis looks but it's just playing around. Moving into more of the squat mechanics some of your work that has stuck out the most to me has been your work with and with my own um, assessment that I received back from you as well was obviously talking about the adductors and doing some you know adductor release work to kind of stop that knee valgus for myself as an individual but what have you found over the past few years with the adductors and squatting? The adductor magnus, it is a highly underestimated hip extensor in deeper hip flexion. So um, me and some colleagues, we took my master's research and we did some extra muscle modeling based on some cadaver anatomy, like looking at you know internal moment arms of the muscles and how they can generate torque in different hip positions. And it was really surprising that um, it, how the modeling worked out was the, the adductor magnus is like the primary hip extensor in deep hip flexion. So when you're in deep hip flexion, that means a deep squat position. So the glutes, they have a really hard time because they have a very small internal moment arm um, to produce hip extensor torque. So the, the adductor magnus is that muscle. When it comes to squatting, um, I think of it like a sliding scale. So from the parallel and the deeper you go, the knee extensor, so quad demands, they, they like kind of spike up really quickly. So for a lifter who um, their form breaks down in the deeper positions, it's, you know, probably where they can't get deep. Um, it's probably a, a quad weakness um, to produce hip or knee extension. But if their quads aren't strong enough to, to do it and you're in that deep position, then you're probably going to transfer loading to the hip. Um, but in the deeper positions, your hip extensors 
major hip extensor is the adductor magnus. So we might get some knee valgus there. Another situation is if the glutes are strong enough in a more hip hinged position, then again, the adductor magnus will get recruited. So it can be because of two different um, issues and it just depends on assessing, okay, what is the lifters, you know, relatively your muscle group? How does it change as load is increased? Is it, you know, range of motion dependent? But we, we see knee valgus and people think it's like, it's a negative thing and that, you know, it's this bad technique or bad form, but we don't, we're just learning more about the adductor magnus anatomy and its function. And, you know, it, it's actually just your muscles doing what they want to do. It, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, whenever there's something, you know, that you want to be improving, you know, and you, and you don't want to be doing knee valgus, then there's, there's ways of getting around it. And that's what we worked on. We worked on um, getting tension out of them because what I found um, was that lifters who had a lot of knee valgus, they kept a lot of tension in that muscle. And when there's a lot of tension in the adductor magnus, one, it's linked to a tight pelvic floor, but two, it, it can cause, and it's really hard, like no one has researched it because it's like almost impossible to test reciprocal inhibition of the glutes. Um, I tried, <laughs> I tried figuring it out during my postdoc, but I couldn't. So my theory is, is that when the adductor vagus is really tight, it can cause some inhibition of the glutes. So um, it's a spinal reflex where the antagonist opposing muscle of a muscle um, gets inhibited because there's a tension in the um, other muscle. So the adductor vagus, we have by adduction, that's the same internal rotation. And so the glutes, they're that abductor thighs out and external rotation. So um, what I found was whenever we would do any type of myofascial release of the adductor magnus, the glutes were more easily engaged. As soon as you added more load to the bar, this went away. So it, it was apparent that it was a neurological um, consequence of the adductor magnus having tension in it. So the myofascial release, it really helped with that. But um, because it's neurological, that means that the lifter has to be doing it like basically between every set, if every couple of sets, and, and you'll notice it and because more tension will be added to the adductor magnus. It wants to contribute more. The glutes get re, um, re-inhibited. So it's about keeping tension out of that muscle. And um, there are a lot of misconceptions with you know, the adductor magnus. And some people think, oh, well, I have the adductor magnus. I now understand the, hip, the adductor magnus is a hip extensor. So that means I'm going to spend a lot of time training it and getting it really strong. And because it's going to help my glutes out. But we know that it can cause some pelvic floor problems. And we know it can potentially cause some glute inhibition problems. So um, there are people with weak adductors that need to be strengthening it. But I, you know, there's a lot of people, I'd say a greater proportion of people that overuse them, especially females, um, based on our anatomy and our hip structure. We use the adductor magnus more than males do uh, to contribute to hip extension and deeper squat positions. So if we want to improve knee valgus, it's about getting the tension of the adductor magnus to better engage the glutes. You want your glutes to be that primary powerhouse. But um, the, the knee extensors, they want to be, they're, they're supposed to be that primary contributor, contributor in deep positions. The glutes are the primary contributor in higher positions. So um, look at where the knee valgus is happening and you'll be able to determine why it's happening. Yeah. And then, then that's how you determine, okay, 
I need to strengthen this muscle, and then I need to strengthen this muscle. So that's what's going to resolve the knee valgus, not strengthening your glute need and you know trying to hope that your your thigh will stay out more. It's like no, let's just get the muscles that are supposed to be doing the job stronger, and so that we're not always using this adductor magnus more than we need to be. Ever since I had like started powerlifting, I had always had problems with knee valgus, but I sought out help for it. Everyone was just saying, you know, strengthen your glutes, strengthen your glutes. One of my coworkers at the gym, he was one of the first people to be like, I really don't think it's your glutes. You know, you're kind of, you're pretty strong in your, in your glutes to be able to lifting X amount. And then not too long after you told me after with the assessment, you told me to release my adductors. And it was such a big difference for me in my squat in terms of just having that stability back and obviously being able to feel my glutes. But it's also something I have utilized so frequently with my clients as well, especially my female clients, just kind of adding that release work in and obviously not being able to see it straight away. They obviously kind of get that feeling of their glutes the more that they do it. But definitely seeing the change over time, obviously things kind of starting to rewire a little bit more, obviously using the glutes a little bit more efficiently in the squat. Yeah. And it goes back to what I was saying that your body is going to do what it needs to do. If one muscle group is working a lot harder than the other ones, the, your central nervous system does not want to make it work even more. So it's going to change your technique and it's going to recruit synergist muscles or muscles at different joints to take up the loading demands. So with the adductors, it's just that that is your, your body um, recruiting a muscle to achieve the goal of getting the bar up. And that is the, the point that I'm trying to get across to people that, yeah, you can do clams all day long, you can isolate those glute needs. But as soon as you get to a multi-joint task where we're dealing with spinal reflexes and you know, muscle coordination and the central nervous system come, you know, is a lot more of a determining factor, um, you're, you know, you're beating your head against a wall. Like it's, it's, yeah. You're wasting your time. And yes, general population probably weak glute needs are um, a cause of you know knee valgus and coming in but for powerlifters where they you know can squat like double their body weight probably not that little glute knee muscle is causing them issues yeah a good example is he's going to kill me for talking about him but my my husband so he was in a motorcycle accident like over 10 years ago where um you know he was basically pronounced dead on the way to the hospital but oh, wow. he lost a lot of blood and uh, it cut he had this he has this big cut on the side of his hip and they had to almost surgically reattach his glutes so we were and I, he's kind of like my guinea pig and it's, it's fun because I'm like oh you're this puzzle I need to solve to make you better but I just came to the real I always thought oh your glute meat is just so atrophied because you have nerve damage and then we were doing this exercise the other day and he he's a big strong guy but like he physically couldn't do this clam exercise on one side he could do it perfectly fine the other and i'm like holy crap you don't have a glute need like it is not there wow. so i know i know what it like you know can look like but if you watch him squat he doesn't have knee valgus like you cannot have a glute need and not have knee valgus so that is that you know kind of tangent story that just glute need weakness is not the cause of knee valgus it's overuse of the adductor magnus recently you actually posted two different images and it was looking at glute contribution and then also the adductor contribution and breaking that down male to female 
and you found that males typically use their glutes more and females typically use their adductors more. Do you have a theory as to why males typically are able to use their glutes more or do use their glutes more as opposed to females? I think it's it's just your body structure, like the water pelvis. Um, it changes the your, your body's really good at taking advantage of its mechanical advantages. So if the muscle has a mechanical advantage because it's got this really long internal moment arm, so to produce torque, so just saying like it can produce rotational force really well, um, it's going to use it in that position. So with women, I think it's a, a just a structural thing. And then if you're chronically using a muscle like this over time, your your body is going to naturally want to use it more. I think it's it's a little bit of both. It's a like a motor strategy you kind of ingrain in your brain, and it's also because of that structural difference between men and women. Um, yeah. Another thing is men. Um, with that modeling, I, I didn't post about it because I, I messed up my my figure for it and I lost the data. But oh, men no. typically <laughs> will use their their hamstrings more. So whenever women use a recruit a synergist they're first they're more likely to recruit the adductor magnus to assist the glutes for the men they're more likely to use their their hamstrings to assist the glutes um and maybe that is again like a a structural thing or you know uh, a motor thing that's just in our brain or it could be you know a little bit of both um i'm not sure but that is my best educated guess yeah i'm completely fine saying i'm not sure i'll give you an educated one other thing i was really interested in your presentation, Train Like a Girl, was speaking about uh, our hormones and competing on our cycles and what that actually means, what happens with these hormones. I am very unfortunate in the sense that three of my major competitions has been day one of my cycle. But it was hilarious. You were saying, you know, we can't really plan our, you know, ask the meat directors to pop the date around our cycle, although that would be great. For the meat director. Like (laughs) if you have your your women if you have your women's group and everyone gets their cycles all synced up. Okay, we're we're gonna plan our powerlifting meet or in house powerlifting meet on this day or (laughs) your test day. So that is shown to be true. I always thought I was gonna have problems getting pregnant because of just years of like I did a, a bodybuilding show and I had to go on progesterone treatment to get my 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 cycle back because I just I, it, I gained my weight back but it just was yeah. not coming back so I'd go on hormone treatment for that and then I started hanging out with babies and pre and postnatal women and then all of a sudden I like became my, my cycle became normal and I'm like, man like this <laughs> this environment thing and then all of a sudden oh, Charlie came into our life baby Charlie <laughs> so I, I thank the women that you surround yourselves with. Um, it, it's crazy that just your environment can actually influence your hormones. Definitely. Like that. So every guy that's listening to this right now has immediately gotten uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> I maybe think they were uncomfortable at the urinary incontinence, but yeah, yeah. maybe they left then. But so many male coaches need to learn. They need to know. Definitely. It's it's being neglected. Um, the way you can maximize female strength training and you know their performance just by understanding the simple trade-off of when estrogen peaks and when it declines and progesterone increases and how it affects the human body or the female body is just a really unique 
tool and males need to get, get comfortable with it if they yeah. want to have successful, strong women. When we think about the cycle and obviously it's going to vary person to person pretty much because sometimes someone's cycle won't be in that perfect 28 days, which is usually how it's typically spoken about. When someone is in that well, one to 14 days, that's obviously when mm-hmm. the estrogen is peaking. That's when You've spoken about, you know, you have the increased carb utilization, the increased muscle and connective tissue strength. So what would you recommend in terms of utilizing training to the best of your ability? So I guess it's about, so if you're programming on like a a four week kind of block, um, and like I said, I'm not the best at programming. Um, It's not my, my area, but um, it just makes sense that if the muscle is strong and you have really these higher hypertrophic capabilities, like you have a greater point in your cycle where you can gain the most um, muscle mass and you're, and you're stronger, then you want to be really peaking the muscles then. Um, then when, so that's when estrogen is the dominant hormone. Yep. Then after those first two weeks, estrogen goes down, progesterone increases. And what progesterone does is it decreases connective tissue strength and decreases uh, muscle strength. Um, And the best way of, you know, visualizing or thinking about this is whenever uh, like a woman is pregnant, they need their tendons to get looser for a baby to come out. So that's where progesterone is going to be that dominant hormone that that causes that to happen for the the uterus to open and the, the pelvis to expand for a baby to come out. It's just that is our body evolution causes to have these cycles. And so whenever if you're you're maxing out on a time when your connective tissue and your joints are a little bit looser, even just by a little bit probably not the safest bet. Um, and there are some research studies that shown that there is this correlation, you know, it's correlation, not causation, but correlation that women, when they typically injure themselves, it's right around, um, you know, right before they're, they're going to have their period. In Australia, uh, they announced in February, they're looking at AFL um, and in the women's AFL league, they're starting to actually realize how much of an impact the cycle does play on these players getting injured. It's something that's been in right in front of our faces for so long. And it just took like, you know, going back to your, the book, <laughs> going yeah. back to the basic theology and being like, huh, wait a minute. Um, maybe I shouldn't be treated like a male lifter and yeah. because my hormones are different. I do think it's important as well for people to track their cycle because there are so many variables when it comes to training and programming and all of it. But obviously, if you walk into the gym and you feel really good and then the week after that lift is now really heavy. And if you look and you can see that's kind of where, what point you are in your cycle, at least you feel a little bit better about it. Yeah, like, no, you didn't, you didn't lose all your gains. It's just your hormones messing with you. Yeah, yeah it happens, though. It happens with myself. It happens with, you know, my female clients a lot. Some weeks they'll come in and it's just not there. Everything just feels harder. Everything looks harder. And yeah, obviously that would be related to their cycle amongst other things. But I definitely think it's a big variable that people need to be aware of when it comes to programming um, female clients. Yeah. And there's a lot of female clients will be on, you know, contraceptives and birth control. So if they're on and like, I don't, they'll ask, okay, well, what if I'm on birth control? It, it changes my cycle. And I don't have a clear cut answer for it because there's so many different types of birth control. Like yeah. for me right now, I'm, I'm still breastfeeding, so I can't be on an estrogen um, birth control. 
because it'll just wipe out my milk supply. So I, I know there is progesterone dominant ones and then there's estrogen dominant ones. And, you know, if you're on a progesterone dominant one, then, then you know that, okay, there's more progesterone and the different um, you know, variations of it probably circulating through my body. And maybe that may cause some declines in my performance. And maybe I should switch to a more estrogen dominant one. It is hard, obviously, with uh, contraceptive, especially some people, and I group myself into this group, is when I first got on birth control, I was actually quite young. And so you don't actually realize the implications that it does have because you don't really understand the hormones. Yeah, and I, I've tried a different couple of different types. And um, like one, like the NuvaRing, it's an estrogen um, birth control type. And I found like it didn't, you don't have as much fluctuations and PMS problems and feeling like hormonally. Um, so it's just a matter of the, they just need to play around with which one, you know, kind of works for them, but yep. definitely tracking. Yeah. So um, for anyone who is listening and does want a good app, I use the app flow. It is a free app, but it gets you to, you can input as much detail as you want or as little as you want, but it does track it for you and you can just log in and it just tells you where you are in your cycle as well. Um, and also predicts when your next one is going to be. So if you are choosing a competition, maybe you can use the app. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> at least have more putting, of an You're the educated. meat director. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, speaking again about females and female anatomy, you spoke a lot about female and their muscle fibers. And I have never related so hard to a topic because... <laughs> yeah. I definitely fit this box when we speak about, you know, those really big high rep sets and feeling so strong and absolutely smashing it and then whacking on five kilos and feeling like it's about to bury you. So again, there's the research on this wasn't intended to, you know, be applied to strength and conditioning at all. But um, there's a lot of research showing that women are more fatigue resistant. And um, there's been a couple studies um, that have been attributing this to differences in how they recruit their motor units. So the motor unit is the, the motor neuron, so the nerve that sends down from the brain that innervates and connects to the muscle that causes it to contract. So it's that functional unit of uh, muscle contraction. So we can increase force output by adding in, like recruiting more motor units, or we can get the ones that are already recruited to fire more, like quicker, and that's called rate coding. Um, so what these research studies were showing is that women typically, or the, what they were showing was that they were relying on the rate coding to increase force output. So instead of just um, recruiting more bigger, um, stronger, faster twitch, um, really speedy muscle fibers, women were relying on their slow twitch, um, the really endurance fibers that are very fatigue resistant. Yep. And so those motor units, those muscle fibers, they'll just contract quicker and fire faster and then they'll summate and add on each other. And so that's how our kind of like first line of defense is to increase force output. Um, where males, they're the opposite and they'll recruit more motor units. They'll, they're better at act, fully activating their muscle and then they'll rely on recording at the end. With that, women have problems fully activating their muscles in comparison to men. It's not that they can, it's just men are, are better at it because they're better at recruiting more motor units where women, they want to just, you know, use what we got, um, the more fatigue resistant ones. And I'm sure this goes back to evolution and childbearing. Everything goes back to childbearing with women. And, you know, it, 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 things a marathon for women um, versus men. 
So it, it is that women are fatigue resistant, but then you add more load to the bar and they're required to recruit more motor units because it's heavier and they just aren't as good at it. And so that's yeah. where like, okay, I'm going to do this weight and I could just crush 10 reps and then I add like five kilos to the bar and then I fail. And you're like, what the hell? Like, I don't get it. And it's maybe that they just have, are having problems recruiting those, those motor units and um, yeah. then developing some strategies to get them better at recruiting the muscles. I remember you speaking about, you know, maybe doing some heavy walkout when, with a squat. What else would you encourage people to do who are in that similar situation? Because it is absolutely common. I see a lot of my clients have the same issue, you know, and you have to be very careful with some of the jumps you take, especially in a competition. Yeah. Yeah. So when it comes to, when you look at a muscle and its activity and its electrical signal, um, you'll see its highest signal during isometric contractions. And right now with everyone training at home, there's isometrics are this big trend right now. So it might be kind of on trend to talk about. Um, but that's where you get like this high recruitment of the muscle. So isometric being like, there's no movement. So if you're pushing, trying to push the world down or push a wall to house, obviously you're not going to move it, um, but you are working really hard, even though you don't see any joint movement. So doing something like that, um, like just holding a weight on your back, um, if you're doing um, kind of a partial range of motion exercise um, for the glutes, just something that is less dynamic and less quick of a contraction. So kind of slow um, is, is better. Um, and I find that with women just handling the weight on their back, it kind of like tricks their brain to being like, okay, I need to really recruit these muscles properly and kind of gets it ready. And women, um, I find because of this whole thing, they, they kind of get psyched out more when the weight gets heavier. And then all of a sudden it doesn't feel as good as the weight before. And it, it kind of messes with them. So by doing like, like just heavy walkouts, um, you know, partial squats, anything isometrics, it helps them prime the muscles to, you know, be able to contract more fully the central nervous system, kind of like peaks the central nervous system better. Um, another thing is post-activation potentiation. So that's where you do a really heavy, like single or contraction. Um, they use it in sprints and track and field a lot. So we'll get the, the track and field athletes to do like a heavy squat and then weight between four to 10 minutes and get them to do their sprint. And they'll show that they actually sprint faster um, after the heavy squat versus if they don't. And so it, it causes this increased sensitivity of the muscle to you know, recruit those really big, um, fast twitch, strong muscle fibers um, during the subsequent you know, for powerlifting drop set. Um, so using drop sets could be beneficial for women. So you're, you're not you know, overloading the central nervous system and overtraining it, but you're making these muscles more likely to contract at a lower load by doing that prior heavy set beforehand. With that top set before the drop set, would that look like a single or would it be more reps? Can you do it with reps or does it have to be kind of over a specific percent for that to actually work? So PAP, post-activation potentiation, it's like a separate entity than fatigue. So it's not that they're the, you know, you, you either have one or the other it's they're both occurring at the same time so you want to maximize the post-activation potentiation while minimizing the fatigue so that is may have that increased calcium sensitivity that causes the muscles to contract better in the drop set like immediately after 
but you need the fatigue to subside from that heavy contraction. So if you're doing a bunch of reps, like a heavy, you know, five reps, then you accumulate a lot more fatigue than if you did a heavy single. But the heavy single, you, you know, got a lot more PAP um, and less fatigue. So it's about that, that heavy um, single beforehand. And then you need to wait for the fatigue to subside a bit, but at the same time, not wait so long that you've lost the PAP. Yeah. So there's a lot of research studies done in it. And for squats, um, they show for the squat, it's between like four to 12 minutes, I think. Um, bench press, you can do it a little bit sooner because of the difference yeah. in muscle fiber constituents um, in your upper body versus your lower body. So it's it's that, you know, as when one's peaking, you need the other one to be declining a bit. I mean, I don't think a lot of powerlifters will have a problem with waiting 12 minutes. I think that's... <laughs> It's exactly like in a competition, right? Like, so when yeah. you're doing your warm ups, like, do a heavy single. Like, I, I have one male lifter who's actually a, and I, he called them like a slow lifter. They're really good at grinding it up. Yep. Um, and I told him to start doing his first um, attempt in the warm up room. Like, so not doing a ton of reps because he likes to like grind, just do a bunch of reps and that makes him feel warm. But I'm, I was telling him that he was fatiguing too much. And so by just doing like, um, he'll work up to his first single and then start early enough that he's taking long enough breaks. And then before he goes on the platform to do a heavy walkout, like way like super maximal heavy walkout and that kind of tricked his brain. And then he went on the platform and he was like, holy crap, like I've never moved that fast. And then like that is post-activation potentiation. (laughs) It is individual specific. So, you know, some people are more maybe type one, slow twitch, fatigue resistant fiber dominance, that like they, they use that, which is more like females. Other people are those really fast, quick lifters, um, explosive. Um, so they would probably be already really good at recruiting those muscle fibers. So they may not benefit from PAP as much in the, their programming. Yeah, I think it's interesting because sometimes you are in the warm-up room and you do see someone go up to something so heavy that is so close to their first attempt. Your immediate response is, well, like this person's gone (laughs) really heavy, but it is really cool that there is such a method behind it. And obviously that's probably worked for that person. They kind of need that before they walk out onto the platform. And you want to, you don't want to just wait until a competition day. Like you want to be doing it yeah. when you're peaking and, and get used to it because you're going to find that, that window that works and you'll know if going too heavy is too much and you've caused too much fatigue. So if you are grinding up a lot, your last warm up, then you've probably gone too heavy. Um, but if it's still moving, but you know, it, it's you know, like pretty, you know, effort, like you require a lot of effort for it, but it, it, it moved well, it's not a grind, then um, it's a it's a good indication that that's a good PAP set. I'm not sure there's anything as scary as from a coaching or from a competing uh, perspective when you do your last warm up and it is a grind. Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I no, I've I've, I've been there. I was a uh, squats for my kryptonite too, and um, throw in wearing a heavy or like the the squat suit and knee wraps and everything has to be timed perfectly and you cut weight and your suit doesn't fit you as tight anymore. And then like everything is just going, but the only worlds I competed at, I just, I was, I cried the entire time because I almost bombed on squats because I just, I had to cut too much weight and um, I was, didn't get my first two attempts. My, my coach at the time was like, 
just like freaking out and then he was making me freak out and I just yeah. the, the Russian coaches were trying to steal my wrist wraps it was really like a messed up situation so how long were you doing equipped long time ago. before going to raw my first competition I ever did was raw um but uh, it was just because I wasn't ready for the gear yet um I think my my last equipped nationals 2000 11 or 2012 it was in calgary i can't remember and then after that i did um it unequipped so classic raw and i i realized how much i relied on my gear and how good i was (laughs) at it because like i could squat over 150 kilos in a suit but trying to do like 80 um unequipped it, it wasn't so good and that was another thing of understanding how different muscles contribute. And I was always reinforcing the ones that were at the top end of the range of motion where the suit wasn't assisting me. So all of my mistakes have gotten me to where I am today and understanding for everyone else to just spread the message. One thing that I kind of forgot to ask when we were talking about um, incontinence and incontinence on the platform is, do you think it is more in sumo lifters than it is in conventional because the more time I spend involved in powerlifting and seeing people compete, from what I have noticed on Instagram is a lot of people who are in a sumo position seem to struggle with it more or it's just more apparent, obviously, just because of their leg position. But have you found anything linking sumo to pelvic floor issues or? Um, like I've seen women, like even like squatting, I've seen a really narrow stance, female squatter, um, you know, leak on the platform versus, you know, a wider stance. Um, I think with sumo, maybe when you're wider, you have more tension on the adductor magnus and that might, you know, cause some problems, but I think it's more like you're just in a more vulnerable position. Maybe. Definitely. <laughs> and, <laughs> but yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, something that I haven't considered before. There's a lot of things when it comes to the women's bodies that they feel like it's embarrassing to talk about. And I was definitely one of them, especially when you're training with a bunch of guys. Like the last thing I want to talk about is, you know, pain and aching in my pelvic floor. And now I'm looking back and like, huh, that's because it was really, really tight and and causing me issues. And there's a lot of different um, conditions of the pelvic floor that a lot of women probably don't even know existed until they read it. And you're like, crap that like it's home with me like yeah okay, that is something that is more that it is something that can be be fixed and, that, and I'm not alone um just before we wrap up I do want to chat to you about your bodybuilding so when did you do that was that before powerlifting no it was I, I needed a, a mental break from powerlifting um like I I herniated a disc in my back in pro, when was it 2000 2009 maybe um I was equipped lifting and it, I had a bad spot and it twisted and um herniated disc in my back and it, it it's that everyone can understand sometimes they just need a mental break from you know the heavy loading on their back definitely but I'm I'm a little I don't know OCD a bit <laughs> and I couldn't handle not having some like a competition to, to strive towards like I need something to keep me motivated so I was like oh like I'm, I'm just gonna do a bodybuilding pro, uh, competition like no big deal so it was actually like my break from powerlifting that I decided to do bodybuilding and maybe it was a little bit like okay maybe I shouldn't like make fun of bodybuilders 
if I haven't done it myself and seen what they've gone through. Yeah. You know, powerlifters, everyone's like so in their sport, like, oh, no cross, oh, like Olympic weightlifting, oh, powerlifters. Yeah. But I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't like say, you know, I need to live in their shoes. So um, I, I did two competitions. Um, one, I, I coached myself my first one and I was like yeah I'll be fine like and I got really that's a big hole yeah yeah like I was just like yeah I'll I'll wing it and I did I did pretty good and like I got pretty lean and I didn't rebound at all and then my next one I was like okay I'm gonna take this serious I'm gonna actually compete in a federation that's you know more serious and I'm gonna hire a coach and I got really lean and I did really good but I rebounded so bad because I was so restricted but Mm -hmm. the best thing about the rebound was that I got really strong. Like my strongest squat was after my post figure competition (laughs) rebound, which was, you know, I thought maybe I would lose all my strength. Um, But just the central nervous system is, is crazy that if you just um, peak it right away and get it back in the game, like you can get your strength back really quickly. And that's was the strongest I ever was powerlifting um, was my post figure competition rebound. So it, yeah, long story short, it wasn't something that like, I was like, I'm going to be a bodybuilder now. It was, okay, I need a break from powerlifting. But then I went stir crazy. And I was like, I need a competition. I do find that a lot of um, bodybuilders do end up going into powerlifting, probably more for that mental break. You know, you hear from a lot of females that they do need that time away from focusing so much on their aesthetics and what their body looks like. And obviously powerlifting is a great sport for that. They're not relying on their, their physical appearance to, to build the, the head confidence. Yeah. And that's why I'm, uh, it's crazy how powerlifting has blown up with like how many female lifters there are all over the world. And compared to, like I said, when I first started and I won best junior because of there's three of us, there's three female juniors. <laughs> so it was like, Oh, what, what's this award? What's best junior? And I'm like, oh, I, I think back and I'm like, oh, I was so unappreciative <laughs> of what I had back then. It's, it's fantastic. And I think this, I really hope that powerlifting becomes like an Olympic sport and that people start getting the kind of sponsorship and financial help to, mm. to make it into something because like it, it's an amateur sport. Like, well, things have changed a little bit now, but back when I was competing, if you if you competed at a high level, it's because you loved it so much that you were willing to go broke to get there. Yeah. I think it's awesome that they've obviously come out with things like, I know it was postponed because of all that is going on, but like the Sheffield Cup, which was a huge, huge, huge prize pool. So it's good to see big companies like SBD start to really give back in a financial form because there's only obviously so far knee sleeves can can take yeah and it's I I don't know what it was like in other countries but I remember in Canada like they they weren't allowed to give money prizes so that was something that I'm not sure like when it switched because I was kind of in my my lab bubble and came out of it for air and realized that the world had changed and I was like oh this is a popular sport now (laughs) they're like oh you can make money like you can give like you weren't allowed to give money as a door prize because it was an amateur sport yeah uh, wow yeah that is pretty much all our topics covered do you want to tell everyone where they can find you or I'm not too sure um if train like a girl is still available 
for purchase, but I would recommend that to uh, anyone and especially male coaches as well, if they really are interested in understanding the differences and starting to implement them with their, you know, female clients, I would absolutely recommend that as a point to kind of start with and where to find your research as well. Um, So my research is under my maiden name, um, Megan Bryanton. Um, if you just go Google scholar and write Megan Bryanton squat, you know, it, it, it comes up pretty quickly. Cause I, back then I was the only Megan Bryanton in the world. And now I'm the most generic Megan Jones in the world. <laughs> so that was a big change. So it's under my uh, maiden name, Megan Bryanton. And sometimes I'll refer to myself as Dr. Bryanton or it'll be in like um, brackets and, and that's just why because if people want to look at my research then it's under my maiden name for my my website if you want to find more information it's um, kineticadvantage.ca um, can't stress the .ca because I'm Canadian and um, all of my my prices and stuff it's in Canadian currency a lot of people write .com and they end up on some other site and, and they come find me but it's .ca um, as for the female powerlifter presentation, um, I had it available as a fundraiser for breast cancer research. So it, it's no longer available for um, donation download anymore. But um, right now it's available for um, anyone signed up for my coach's corner. So that's a, a new service that I, I, I had all these coaches coming to me and like, do you, do you offer anything for coaches who have teams of lifters instead of, you know, buying an individual assessment and, you know, they don't need the the full breakdown and biomechanic lesson, every single assessment. They just want, you know, the immediate feedback about this lifter. Um, and I, it just kind of like popped in my head. I was like, okay, hey, this is a, a way, a subscription service is, is way easier where, you know, they subscribe and they get me a day. Um, they get content every month. So this month they get a copy of my powerlifting technique booklet and they get the female powerlifter presentation as well. Um, but if someone really wants their hands on it, just, you know, give me a shout. Um, my email is Megan at kineticadvantage.ca. Um, and I'd be happy to, to figure something out and send it along. It's information that just, it needs to be get, to get out there, but, um, it's not available on my website. So you have to contact me directly. Yeah. And I will pop that in the podcast bio as well. And your Instagram handle, is it? It's Advantage. Yes. It was last week. I think you posted Jen Thompson's bench and you broke that down, which was really cool to see. And I think yeah, you had Bryce coming up. Yeah, that was, that was really up. fun. I, yeah. Like I contacted, like I had the idea and I contacted Jen in advance because I, I always like to get consent from the lifter first. Um, just, you know, like I'm, I'm telling the world, like how their body works and why they're so strong. Like maybe some people are uncomfortable about it. So I contacted Jen and she was like, Oh, you know, like she's a little hesitant. Cause she, she didn't know who I was and like what it really meant. Cause mm-hmm. um, a lot of people think like, I'm just going to rip apart her technique and, you know, a high level lifter with a lot of followers, I'm sure they get like flack and like, Oh, why do you do this? And they have to deal with the, the yeah. trolls. So she's like asked if I minded if I sent it to her before I put it up and I said absolutely like if you listen to it and you are uncomfortable then it doesn't see the light of day and she she loved it and she was like oh like finally like someone's like because everyone would um, give her like flack for flaring her elbows off her chest and I'm telling people that it's actually a really good thing and she's like finally like someone like broke it down to the science and supporting it and so now since everyone liked that one so much, um, I'm doing it on Bryce next. And um, he's a good 
person to do it on because he's fairly high bar and a lot of people are like oh why do you squat like high bar like that like you're stronger when you're low bar and you need to base your technique off of your your leverages and your body proportions and um, I'm I'm going to tell you guys that body proportions don't mean shit <laughs> it <laughs> <laughs> it it may be related and correlated, but it's going to be about playing to your strengths um, rather than your weaknesses. And you can, for example, have really long legs and bad leverages, but if your quads are, your rel- are a lot stronger than your glutes, then you probably want to be selecting a technique that takes advantage of that strong for muscle group. And there are lifters out there that I work with that are, you know, examples of this. They, you look at them, they're like, no way that they should be squatting like this and they need to be lifting sumo and then you actually try to get them to do it and it just doesn't work and they don't understand like but the chart said your limb yeah so that is my kind of sneak peek of um, how I'll be breaking down Bryce's squat for that and um, thanks to him for for agreeing and letting me do it I'm really looking forward to seeing that and for seeing you break it down I'll try my best to get it out soon Thank you so much for spending your night chatting to me. I'm so excited to be able to post this as the first podcast episode. And no, yeah, I'm just and really, I'm honored to be your first. Thank you. But yeah, <laughs> big, big fan of your work. And yeah, I would encourage anyone who is interested in getting an assessment done from Megan to absolutely get it done. It's very worthwhile um, from a coaching and from a competing standpoint as well. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Awesome. It was so good to chat to you and I'm sure I will chat to you soon. Absolutely. And there we have it. Episode one with Dr. Megan Jones from Kinetic Advantage Consulting. Thank you all so much for joining me for our first episode. It means the world to me. And don't forget to send us a DM if you have any questions and refer to the show notes if you are looking for any resources that we mentioned during this episode. Thank you again and I'll see you next time.